It is truly a joy to be before you, to our visitors. We're glad that you chose to worship with us today. To the Forest family, looking forward to digging in a word with you and pray that you will be praying as we move forth. Amen. Last week we started uh, just a a mini-series that we may conclude today, uh, just about the end times, the end times, what we uh, called eschatology. Somebody say that with me, eschatology. Eschatology has a, a big word that can uh, summarize a short phrase, which simply means the end times or the study of the end times. So if you would, grab your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 13 as we will continue to study eschatology, the end times. The title of the series is just that, the end times. Last week we looked at signs of the times. Today we're going to look at the coming the second coming, the parousia, the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As is tradition here at Forest Baptist Church, we stand for the reading of God's word. For this is the word of God. Peter said that it is profitable to all godliness. Paul says that it is sufficient. It is God speaking to us, so let's read it. We're going to start today at verse 9, and I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter. Uh, Last week we went through verses 1 through 8. Today we're simply going to just walk through these verses, pull out some some jewels, and then uh, look at the coming of our Savior. Verse 9 says, uh, But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light 
and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Least he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to dig into your most holy word. I thank you, Father God, for everyone who is here under the sound of my voice. I pray, Father God, today that you would allow this word to fall on good soil. Help us, Father God, to have hearts of good soil. Help me to have a heart of good soil, a heart that receives the word with joy and a heart that it will be able to persevere with the word. I pray, Father God, against the thorns and the rocky places of our lives that would seek to snatch this seed away when we leave. We pray against the enemy who seeks to devour this word. I pray, Father God, that you would use me at this time to say whatever you wish, whatever you will. Allow me to be sensitive to your spirit, Father God. Though I am undeserving, Father God, for your namesake and for your glory, speak, Lord, in such a way that we will have no choice but to stay awake. Prepare us, Father God, for the day when your son will come in a wonderful shout of glory at the sound of a trumpet, and all things will be made new. The crooked places will be made straight. Speak now, Heavenly Father, and let us hear like dear, dear children. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I pray that you all have uh, been praying for those who are uh, in the Caribbean and uh, those who are in the East on the East Coast, as we know, uh, the devastating superstorm uh, Sandy uh, has swept through these places. And as a result, there are thousands of people homeless. There have been millions of people without power. And it's easy for us to look at these images on television, especially if we don't have friends or family in New York, and to kind of be disconnected from it. But we want to remind ourselves that these are real people, These are everyday people like you and me who have had their lives violently interrupted, who have had their dreams temporarily uh, suspended. The total damages from the superstorm, I've heard people say, is going to cost billions and billions of dollars. According to LiveScience.com, as of November 1st, the death toll of, uh, of Sandy 
in the Caribbean and in the United States stood at 149. That was as of November 1st, 149. 149 people, 149, some mothers, 149, some fathers, some daughters, some sisters, some brothers, were suddenly taken away by this devastating storm. 149 people who had planned to live suddenly died. 149 people opened their eyes after their death and beheld a real living God. And they either beheld this living God as their father, or they saw this living God and heard his voice with terror as he is their judge. 149 people stepped from this temporary state of living into an eternal state of living. But you know, each and every one of us, God forbid, each and every one of us in this room is one tragedy and one mistake away from leaving this temporary home and going to an eternal home. Either with eternal life or eternal death. We are each a super storm away from meeting God. Life is short, as the adage says. And we really could be here today, some say, or gone tomorrow. We could be here today and gone today. According to Mark chapter 13, the Bible teaches us that storms are going to intensify as Jesus is getting closer or nearer to to return. We talked about last week four signs of the end times. And we learned that there are are four signs that will, will give hint to the Messiah's return. We learned that there will be false messiahs, and that will be a sign. We learned that there will be wars and rumors of wars, and that will be a sign. We learned that there will be famines and earthquakes and natural disasters, and we also learned, and we will learn today even more, that there will be intense persecution. So so Jesus has been talking to his disciples and preparing them for two things. Number one, he was preparing them for the persecution that was to come which would start off with the temple, Jerusalem, being ransacked and destroyed. But he's also preparing them for the day that he will return. And in Mark chapter 13, we see that Jesus is is talking about both of these events, the destruction of the temple as well as the end of time. And he kind of weaves them together. And as we read it, at some times when we are dissecting this, this passage, we, we look at this passage and, and we have to be careful to say, okay, is he talking about what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was ransacked? Or, or is he talking about the end times? But the fact that Jesus was able to predict these things, to predict the fact that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, 
And remember, there was a time where, where Jesus, just before they went into the temple for the last time, where he looked over Jerusalem as they were entering into the city, and he wept for her. He wept for her because they had rejected him. And he told her that as a result of them rejecting him, that, they, that Jerusalem will be destroyed. In the 70 AD, a Roman general by the name of Titus came in and, and destroyed Jerusalem and, and knocked down the temple. And only the foundation uh, bricks of the temple was left standing, just as Jesus predicted. And this is further proof of Jesus' divinity, that Jesus is able to tell the future because he knows the future. Because as we sang, Jesus is God. But why does Jesus tell them the end times? And why does he put so much emphasis on this coming superstorm of sorts? Well, the reason why he's putting so much emphasis on the end time is because he wants his disciples to be prepared. Jesus warns his disciples about the future in order that they would be better disciples in the present. He warns his disciples about eschatology, the end times, not so that we can just wrestle with it and talk about it over coffee and, and argue about what we believe about it, but in order that we would be alert and alive and awake, knowing that the days are drawing near. The illustration that the biblical authors use, starting with Jesus, is, is he talks about the end times and, and he equates it to say, to, to giving birth, to giving birth. He says, after A.D. 70, after the destruction of Jerusalem, things are going to intensify. There have been wars and rumors of wars and famines. There have been persecutions. There have been false messiahs since the beginning of Judaism. But what Jesus is saying, that, that after the destruction of the, the temple, things are going to intensify even more, just like labor pains in a woman. The contractions start. And when they first start, yeah, they, they, they hurt, but they're, they're not as intense as when it gets closer to the birth of the baby. So Jesus is saying all these signs that, we've, that I'm talking about, they are going to intensify in the earth. And that's what we looked at last week. But today we want to look at three things in this passage. I'm not going to be able to pull out everything because it's a lot here. This is eschatology 101. This is an introduction in many ways. But today we're going to break this passage up into three ways. Number one, we're going to look at how, how Jesus described an intense persecution. Intense persecution. And that's going to be verses 9 through 23. The second thing that we're going to look at is Jesus' mighty return. Jesus' mighty return. That's going to be verses 24 through 27. And then finally, we're going to look at the secrecy of his return, the secrecy of his return, which is verses 24 through 37. So after Jesus gives four of the, the signs of his return, in verse 9, he goes into a fifth sign, and he spends more time on this sign than any other sign. Because this is going to be a, a, a major telling that the end is near. He begins to talk about an intense time of persecution. An intense time of persecution. Verse 9 says, But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, 
and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So he once again uses this phrase, be on guard, stay awake, be alert, because something is getting ready to happen to you. And I believe, again, this has a dualistic interpretation. I believe that Jesus was talking to the disciples and he was preparing them for what was going to happen when he left. And we see an intense persecution of the early church in the book of Acts. In fact, we see it almost right away, an intense persecution. Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 8, we see it. And we see it stirring as James, Jesus' brother, is killed by Herod. And then Stephen, a man full of the Spirit, a deacon, is stoned at the approval of Paul. So he is warning them of these times. But this also, for us, is a warning. That as the day wanes, and as we come closer to seeing Jesus, persecution of Christians it's going to get extremely, extremely intense. And it's not just going to be in certain areas like it is now. They say it's 32 restricted areas where you can go to jail or be beaten or even die for preaching the gospel, reading the Bible, or mentioning the name of Jesus. But as the day of Jesus' return comes, it's going to be a global persecution and an intense time of persecution. With those who are in line with the gospel and who love Jesus will have their life at stake. Jesus warns his disciples that they will deliver them over to councils. That word council in the Greek is the word Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of religious leaders made up of of different sects that was put together in order to protect Israel, the Jews, against cults and against heretics. The Sanhedrin, if there was someone who had broken a commandment or was teaching something falsely about the Bible, what they would do is they would take that person and they would whoop that person with a whoop. And they would normally give them 39 lashes. And the reason why it was 39 lashes and not 40 was because in the law of Moses, in Deuteronomy, I believe it was around the 24th or 25th chapter, God tells them that if they are punishing someone, that they ought to not strike him more than 40 times. And if they strike him more than 40 times, that God was going to come after them. So what they did is they just made sure that they just struck him 39 times in order to give themselves grace in case they miscounted. And we see Jesus. In the coming chapters, Jesus is going to be flogged and beat. And he's going to receive 39 lashes, save one, by the same Sanhedrin court. So Jesus is preparing them, saying that you will stand before the Sanhedrin and you will be beat in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. And why are you standing in front of them? Why are you being beaten? You are being beaten as a witness for me. It's a witness for me. We see throughout the book of Acts, I encourage you, if you have never read the book of Acts, it's A-C-T-S, it is in your New Testament. It is a phenomenal book to read. 
And maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're not a Christian, and you want to know what the early church looks like, and you're here visiting with us today, I encourage you to go home this week. It's not a very long book. I believe it's like 28 chapters. Read the book, and you will see that these things happen. These things happen. But guess what? These things are going to happen again. These things are going to happen again. Verse number 10 says, And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. So Jesus, even though this persecution is going forth, even though they're going to be beat, and even though we're going to be isolated and persecuted, he expects us to be on mission. He expects us to be on mission. He doesn't expect us to run and, and, or, or just to hide and, 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 and be silent about our faith, but rather he expects us to stand up like Daniel and his three friends. He expects us to live among the heathens, glorifying God, saying, let what come be. (laughs) But we will not bow to the false gods of this world. The gospel must be first proclaimed. It must be preached to all nations. This shows the heart of God. That God wants a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to be before him in heaven, singing his glorious praises. And as a church, we want to remember as we await the return of Jesus that the reason that God has saved us is so that we, not so that we can just kind of make it through life and make it to the end, saved for ourselves, but so that we can bring people on with us along the journey so that we can tell a dying, dark world about a living, glorious Savior. He says this gospel, it will be proclaimed to all nations. And what will happen? They will bring you to trials. They will deliver you over to people. Now, if I'm Peter, and I'm the disciple, and I'm hearing this, you know, I'm I'm a little confused. I'm confused because we have just given our allegiance to you, Jesus, and you, you pretty much showed us that you're the Messiah and you accepted us, our, 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 our praise in saying that you are the son of God, you are the awaited king of Israel. And as they are trying to hear this message that Jesus is telling them, they're, they're trying to, to wrap their minds around how he is the Messiah that is talked about in Isaiah chapter 9, the one which, with whom the government shall sit on his shoulder, and, and yet he's the one who whom is going to die. They're trying to figure this out. And they're trying to figure out, wait a minute, if we're we're with you and we're we're, we're going with you because we believe that you're the Messiah. We also believe that that following you and being with you is going to result in our prominence. See, the disciples thought that Jesus was going to to be the, that he was the the suffering servant of Isaiah, that he was going to, well, I should say the, the servant of Isaiah, that he was going to come and he was going to uh, inaugurate the, the kingdom of God, and that he was going to make all things right, that they were going to overthrow the Roman government, and that each of them would be sitting in positions of prominence. But they don't know the whole picture, and they don't see the whole picture. Even in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus raises from the, uh, is raised from the dead, and he comes back on the scene, we see in Acts chapter 1, as he is leaving to go with the Father, they're still scratching their head. And one of the disciples asks, they say, hey, 
When are you going to restore the kingdom? <laughs> but they didn't know that Jesus was doing everything in stages. But even in the midst of this darkness, even in the midst of these warnings, even in the midst of this persecution, there is comfort, there is hope. Jesus goes on and says in verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are going to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So he gives them comfort and he lets them know that something is going to be given to them, a paraclete is going to be given to them. And in John's gospel, we know that he really spent time teaching them what this comforter was, what the Holy Spirit's job and role was. But he's letting them know that he is going to be with them, with his people in the midst of persecution. And even as we Americans sit here, and even as we're in this comfortable church, and we're in our comfortable routines, and our comfortable lives, like, my life ain't comfortable, you don't understand. All right. <laughs> One day, it is very possible in our generation and in your kids' generation that things are going to change. It is very, very possible that being a Christian before you reach uh, uh, your, your latter days in America can result in your death, can result in you starving because you have not made an allegiance with this world. And for some of us, we're hearing that and we're like, eh, I doubt it, but, but it's very possible. The biblical authors, when they're talking about the end times, when, when Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, that's exactly what he's saying. He's writing in a, in a present form. He's telling them that Jesus could come at any moment. He's saying, stand firm, be awake, be awake, stand firm, just like Jesus was. Because the biblical authors understood that things could take a turn and happen anyway. And that's the point of this passage. You know, we think about, what was it? 50, 40, 50 years ago when the, the civil rights movement began to happen. And, and before that, some people thought that it would be a, a long time before uh, the, the Jim Crow laws were uh, abdicated. But we see that happen within a generation. And some of you were there to see that. You were there to see the culture change. And you were there to see America become more united over time on a racial issue. The same thing can happen as it relates to the end times. These things that we're about to talk about can happen within this generation. And the question is, is, are we prepared? Are we prepared to be beaten? Are we prepared to be questioned and interrogated? Are we prepared for verse 12? And brother will deliver you over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He said, a part of this intense persecution is that families are going to be split and divided over the good news about Jesus. Jesus said, I had not come to bring peace, but I've come with a sword. 
In Matthew chapter 10, we see this same admonishment, this same warning as Jesus is telling the disciples that that the gospel can cause brothers to hate brothers, sons to hate fathers, and mothers to hate mothers. And ever since the beginning, ever since the resurrected Jesus and the movement of Christianity, we have seen family split. Even now, over in the Middle East and and areas where, where Islam is prevalent, If you sign up for Voice of the Martyrs, go to voiceofthemartyrs.com and you sign up for your newsletters, you will read story after story about people who heard the gospel and who responded, but family members did not respond. About women who gave their life to Jesus and they had Islamic husbands and how their husbands beat them and put them in a room and allow other men to come and to molest and rape them. All because they put their faith and trust In Jesus. Some of you right now have loved ones that don't believe in Jesus. Some of you right now have atheists in your family. Some of you right now, when you go to Thanksgiving dinner or to Christmas, you are are teased for being a a Bible holder, a Bible-believing Christian. These things can intensify. And we want to remember that God is with us. He has given us his spirit and he has warned us. Verse 14, he continues to talk about these intense, intense, intense contractions and how they're going to get even more intense. And he says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen before since the beginning of creation that God created until now, and there never will be. So Jesus begins to talk about what's here called the abomination of desolation. And this is a, an interesting term. If something is abominable, it, is some, it means that it is detestable. It is degrading. It is something that turns us off. To be desolate means to be, to be barren. What Jesus is pointing to is he's pointing to a man who apparently will come and he will do something that is so abominable, that is so detestable, that the saints will flee, will flee uh, the temple, will flee uh, uh, the, the place of worship, the center of worship at that time, in order to get away from him. Now, when Mark's readers is reading this, they would have probably thought back to about 167 B.C., when there's a man by the name of Antichus Epiphanes, who was known as the abomination of desolation. He entered Jerusalem. He took over the temple. He put up his god, which was probably Zeus, and he killed a swine or a pig on the altar, which was a a big no-no. The Jews then were persecuted. In Jerusalem, 78 D, 
as Mark is warning his readers, as that time is, is, is coming near, Mark warns them, uh, and as they're, they're reading this, they're expecting someone else to do something like that. In 70 AD, there's a man named Titus who did a similar thing. But Jesus is not pointing back then. He is telling us today that there is going to come another person who is going to be so ruthless that if you are a believer or uh, when tribulation breaks, if you are a Jew, you should run and scatter as far as you can when it happens because he's out for blood. He's saying it's going to be a horrible, horrible day. In fact, look at what it says. It says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation until now. The Holocaust, compared to what is going to take place, is not going to compare. Genocides that we've seen uh, happen throughout the continent of, of Africa, Rwanda, is not going to compare. There is coming a time that is so dark and so devastating that if it was possible, even those who are elect, even those who are in God, they would turn their hearts away from Jesus. This is also what the book of Revelations talk about when it talks about the beast. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 13. Let's talk about this man, this abomination of desolation. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation is an apocalyptic book, a, a book that has a lot of symbolism. And in the book of Revelation, we read about this person who is probably the Antichrist and probably the one who Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians when he talks about the man of lawlessness in chapter 2. We're not going to read it all, but let's go to verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to Ex, and to, he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name was not writ, been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is the same thing we see in Daniel chapter 7. I encourage you to read Daniel chapter 7 when you go home. Great chapter if you want to learn more about this, this Antichrist. Daniel chapter 9. This man is going to have a, be very boisterous, going to have a lot of influence as we couple it with other new testament chapters not only is he going to be very influential with his with his message and with his voice but he's going to uh convince people uh the world to go into a, a peace treaty a seven-year treaty and then 
And about halfway through, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, he's going to really show his face after he has won the allegiance of people. He's going to do miracles. He's going to do signs. He's going to perform stuff that's going to make people say, look, the Christ is here. Then he's going to slaughter people. Now, Wednesdays, we're going through Daniel, the book of Daniel. In a couple of weeks, we'll be going through chapter 9, 11, and 12. So we can go way more into detail about who this person is and, and what to expect. But what Jesus is doing is he is warning us that there is going to be a great tribulation, that life will not always be the same. And that even those who are elect, that we will be tempted, we will be tempted to even bow our knee to them. The question I want to ask you today, as we continue through this passage, is, is are you ready? And how do you know if you're ready? For many of us, Christianity is just a kind of a badge. It's uh, just something we do on Sunday or we kind of barely tap into. We have a dual alliance with God and with the world. For some of us, let's just be honest, we're uh, secret Christians, download Christians. We're Christian when it's convenient for us. And if that's you here today, and, and you, you have a, a hard time walking with Jesus publicly, if, if you know that there's someone in your life that is hindering you from walking with Jesus, but the reason why you haven't changed that relationship is because you're afraid to lose them. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a boyfriend, maybe it's a girlfriend, maybe it's a family member. You constantly find yourself pleasing this person and running to this person, even though the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart to live for Jesus. And you keep putting it off because this person is so important to you. Are you really going to bow your knee to God in the face of lawless men who want to kill you for saying Jesus' name? If you're not able to bow your knee to God for some goofy friend? Are you really going to bow your knee to God? If, if being a Christian means that you won't be able to have food, are you going to be able to trust in him then? 2 Thessalonians. Let me turn there real quick. We looked at this last week. Chapter 2 talks some more about this man who, who may be the man of lawlessness. The same man, I believe it is. Paul is warning the church again thousands of years ago to stay alert, to love Jesus, 
because he believed that in his lifetime that these events could have taken place. And he is writing to them with an urgency, saying, wake up. Look what he says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, he's saying, don't be alarmed when people, if people write you, if people come to you and say uh, that Jesus has come back. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction, do you hear this? This man will be a person of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in, in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out the way. And then the lawless one who will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Do you see that? This very deceptive person is going to come. He's going to set up shop. He's going to be doing miracles and signs. He'll probably be on TVN. He's going to have political influence. And he says a shocking statement here. It says, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. The there will be many people who were probably churchgoers who will be deceived. And why will they be deceived? He says why. Because they did not love the truth. Because they did not love the truth. What is the truth? Jesus said, Lord, sanctify them, talking of his disciples, with the truth. And then he says, your word is the truth. Your word is the truth. If we are not lovers of the truth and ultimately lovers of the word, then we're not lovers of Christ. Because Christ is the revealed word, the Logos. Can you be a Christian and not love the Bible? Most Christians, the majority of the, the cases, the answer is no. Because it is, it is God revealed. It's his, it's his revelation. But the wonderful thing about the truth is that the truth sets us free. And we can love the truth because the truth is what gives us victory. It gives us perspective. Job said that he had loved the word of God more than his natural food. Jeremiah described the word of God and, and he, he talked about how he ate it. David said that it was sweeter than the drippings of a honeycomb. If you don't know Jesus... And if you don't love the truth, you are missing out on a magnificent meal that can be had every day. But you're also putting yourself in harm's way, my friend, for this man of great deception. 
He said, well, I'm hearing this sermon. I will remember this. But there's another part at play. Look at the next verse. Verse 12. Verse 11. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion. Do you see that? Those who have not committed their lives to Jesus Christ, who have not looked on his cross, who have not experienced his grace, who have not chosen to love him more than father and mother, sister, daughter, and child, who are not walking in truth, God will allow them to be deceived. In fact, he said he sends a strong delusion so that what they may believe is false. Some of us in here, we are flat out playing games with God. And when we talk about the coming of Jesus and when we feel the weight of this text, Jesus is warning us, don't wait till tomorrow to repent and give your life to Jesus. Jesus is warning us against lukewarmness. And he's saying, wake up, pursue me. If not, danger is coming your way. Danger is coming your way. Paul Continues, he says in verse 12, in order that they may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Had pleasure in unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is what brought them pleasure, is what they sought after. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God did this. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, this is what it means to be alive. This was what it means to be alert. Verse number 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter, th- chapter 2. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter To be alive, to be alert, means to stand firm and walk in the way of the preached word. And walk in the way of the written word. Other words, it's not to just be a doer, a hearer of the word. It's to commit yourself to be a doer of the word. James says, James chapter 1, verse 19 through 26 And he says, for if you are just a hearer of the word, if you have made up your mind to just come to church every Sunday, to just read your Bible, and then just to do whatever you want to do without seriously meditating and contemplating and crying out to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I cannot keep your word, but through you, I will be empowered by your example. I can do all things. If you have not resolved in your heart to trust Jesus for your sanctification for your growth in him. Then you can be easily deceived. So he's saying, stand stand firm. Don't be a hearer of the word, but be a doer. Jesus tells us that there is going to be a time of intense persecution, time of intense tribulation, seven years of, of tribulation. The first three is called... Uh, the tribulation. The next, the last three and a half years is called the great tribulation. And let me tell you how dark, let me tell you how horrible the tribulation is going to be. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 6, 
we read possibly the scariest word of, words in Scripture apart from the promise of hell for those who do not repent and turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. Revelation chapter 9, verse 6, it says, And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In the midst of this dark, heavy message that Jesus is warning and preparing his disciples, he then goes to another message, and it's the, the message of his return. The message of his return. Verse 24, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now we read Mark chapter 13 in light of the rest of Scripture that speaks about the coming of Jesus. So everything, Jesus doesn't cover everything in eschatology here, but he, he skips from this time of tribulation to this time of his second coming. And he gives a, a, a beautiful picture of what it's going to be like. And in this text, we see four things that, that, uh, that are on display about his second coming. Number one, his return, his coming is going to be majestic. Verse 24 through 26. It is going to be majestic. It's, it's going to be, be scary in some ways, but ultimately it's going to be majestic. The sun is going to be darkened. It's a cosmic effect. The moon will not give light. The stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. When the Son of God returns to this earth, there will be cosmic proportions. The stars, the moon will refuse to shine as the Son of Man will be on display. As His majesty will be on display John, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says, Then I opened my eyes and I saw a rider on a white horse. And he describes Jesus in a majestic way. He said, I saw one who is faithful and true, one who judges and who makes war. Later on in Revelation chapter 19, about verse 17 through about verse 24, Jesus is seen as victorious as he conquers the beast, the man of, uh, uh, of the, the Antichrist. And he also uh, conquers the false prophet. And he shows himself to be a majestic, mighty warrior. And he gathers from all corners of the earth and from the heavens. He gathers the elect. He gathers those who have put their faith and trust in him. And the Bible says that from that moment they will be with him forever. This must be our hope. This must be the day that our hearts long for. This must be what we anticipate as Christians, this must be a reality. This just cannot be something that, that as I said last week, that, that we think that might happen. This will happen. 
It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. The God of this world is making all things right. There will be a day where there will not be earthquakes and famines and and hurricanes and storms like Sandy. There will be a day where Jesus will pull back the heavens, step into this world, and show himself to all his haters that he is strong. I love this picture of his majesty as he is coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Coming in the clouds. It didn't say coming through the clouds. It said coming in the clouds. It's it's a picture of what Israel saw as they were being led out of Egypt by a a, a pillar, by a a cloud. Jesus is the very Shekinah glory of God. This will be so amazing. And so beautiful that people won't have to question what is going on. Because we all will see Jesus in his power and in his glory. He is coming back majestically. Not only is he coming back majestically, but he is coming back with justice on his mind. The Bible says that he is gathering a very specific people, and that is his elect. Those who have not put their faith and trust in him. Those who have not looked to his blood for their pardon of their sins, those who have rejected his his precious sacrifice, they will go to war with him. He's coming back with justice on his mind. And even as believers and Christians, as we see this Jesus, this Jesus who's coming back for the elect, for those who are hidden in him, we want to be reminded that we don't have to fight our own battles and our own wars. That Jesus said, vengeance is mine and one day I will repay. Not only is he coming back majestically, not only is he coming back with justice on his mind, but he's coming back secretly. He's coming back secretly. Later on in the passage, we read and we see two stories. One is of a fig tree. And he tells his disciples, pay attention to the the fig tree. Pay attention to the signs that says that summer is coming. He's telling them, you'll know that the time is near when you pay attention to the signs that I've told you. But then he goes on and he tells them over and over in verse 32 through verse 36 to to stay awake and to be on guard. Why? For you do not know when the time will come. Verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleep. He says, listen, you don't know. It's like you don't know when a thief is coming. So he is is coming back secretly. In fact, we know that the Bible says that Jesus even said the son of man, while he was a human being, he didn't know when he was coming back. In Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that when Jesus came to the earth, he laid aside his his right, some of his rights to his divinity. So even though he is is fully God and, and fully man in the flesh, There are some things that he chose to not know while he was man in order that he would experience life as a a human being, as a man. 
So the disciples couldn't pry him and try to get him to say when he was coming back because he didn't know. It was, it was going to be secretly, but finally it was going to be suddenly. People stand in different places when it comes to eschatology as we talked about. Some people believe that the rapture of the church, Christians, teaching that says that Christians will be caught up in heaven with Jesus, that this is going to occur before the tribulation, before all this breaks out. Some believe that it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation, right when the man of lawlessness reveals who he is. Some believe that it's going to happen post-tribulation. At the end of tribulation, Jesus is going to to return. Quite frankly, uh, while I I do have an opinion, uh, there are, are great theologians across the spectrum that have an opinion. And I think the Bible is written in a beautiful, uh, mysterious, and yet revealing way in order that we would do just as this text says, and that is stay awake. Jesus could rapture us up at any moment. Then the events of the tribulation could happen. The question is whether or not we're going to stay awake. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, Luke tells us what it means. He gives a a little more uh, uh, of a of a a description of what it means to be sleep. He says, therefore, stay awake and do not be given over to drunkenness and do not be easily distracted. So I just want to encourage you today, if you're a believer and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, to see his return as something that is going to happen and it could happen at any time. And when you feel yourself waning and our hearts are prone to wonder, to run back to the gospel, to run back to Jesus because he is soon to come. Don't give yourself over to stuff that is distracting you. What's distracting you from following him? What's distracting you from loving him? Who is it? What is it? Whatever it is, it doesn't compare. I want to encourage you to pray to this God. As the text say, pray to him that he will deliver you from this distraction. But for you parents, not only is is your mental peace and your your peace at stake, but your children's are at stake. Is your home a, a place where the resurrected Jesus is being exalted? Is it a place where the reality of a returning Jesus is being talked about. Because maybe, maybe you will not experience the second coming. Maybe it's not in your generation. But what if it's in your child's generation? These formable years that you have with your child are years that you have an opportunity to shape your child's heart to know Jesus and to be known by him. Look to Jesus. Look to the second coming. And remember that this second coming should give us hope because when Jesus returns, we receive an inheritance as heirs of God. Close with this story about a a guy I read some time ago. His name uh, was Michael Parfit. He was a a writer, a prolific writer, and uh, I, I remember reading an article uh, about how in 1993, 
he went and, and did kind of a documentary on the Mississippi River, uh, specifically in a certain area of Mississippi. And as he was looking at this massive river and, uh, and all the different ways that water comes into it, he, was, he, he, he did a documentary on, the, on these levees. And he noticed that, that these levees, he said, if a flood was to happen, uh, these levees will not contain this water. So he wrote an article about it, and he was trying to warn people about it. He did all kind of research, went on a river on a boat, and also flew over the river on a plane. And he writes an article. And the article is published. The name of the article was Soon to Come. Soon to Come. And he warned about how this flood was soon to come. And that if they had not done something to prepare for it, that a catastrophe would happen. Soon to come. Talked about that. Talked about how as he went up the river, he just heard that whisper, soon to come. As he flew in the airplane, he, he, he looked at the previous uh, a shape of the land and how other floods before had shaped the land, and he saw written in the path, soon to come. Three months later, in 1993, after that article was published, massive flood happened. Many people lost their houses and their homes, and some of you remember that. Jesus is soon to come. And some of us are in the way of a massive storm because we have not given our allegiance to him. Today is that day. Read this letter, read this article, take this warning serious, and put your hope in the one who will gather his children and soon call them home. Let's pray.